At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lo Tullis, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. Keep the music flowing. We'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media. Is this for radio or is it being recorded for film or... Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with the interview series presented by WFPK at WFPK.org. Consequence and the Consequence Podcast Network. Thank you, as always, for making your way here, checking out the series. You know what to do. You like what you hear, what you see, hit that subscribe button. I put out three new interviews every single week, new ones every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So it's a great way to keep up with all of your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can do so at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, Podchaser, NPR, YouTube for the video versions, or anywhere you get your podcasts from. Subscribe to Kyle Meredith with. And that's me, I'm Kyle Meredith. Today, talking with Bobby Gillespie, Primal Screams lead singer and main man, about uh, his brand new autobiography called Tenement Kid. Uh, we're going to discuss growing up in post-war England with the fear of death all around him, being anti-fascist and an artist that stands up for causes, also being feminist at a, at a very young age. Uh, Bobby's also going to go on to talk about the power of discovering Thin Lizzy and Ramones when he was just about 15, uh, and then more recently being a fan of Kurt Vile and Kelly Lee Owens, and I want to ask about the sequel. It sounds like there's going to be one, and it'll spotlight his career through the 90s as well. All that and more in this interview. It's Kyle Meredith with Bobby Gillespie. Hi, Kyle. How's it going? So you have got your uh, first autobiography out called uh, Tenement, uh, Tenement Kid uh, out on uh, a third man books. And yeah. man, I just absorbed your world for the uh, the couple weeks that I was reading this book. Congrats on this first. Thank you so much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, that's nice. Thanks. So, so for you, um, you know, taking on a book like this, you know, we'll, we'll start with that. Like, what was the experience for you? Did this come easy? Uh, you know, really, you know, building this, it's more than a lyric is what I'm getting at. Yeah. I, I think I've, um, I find the writing process very enjoyable and, um, I've written bits and pieces, you know, for fanzines and stuff, even before we formed a band and, um, for various music papers over the year. And, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me to introduce them when they get like, you know, like Paul Weller get a Godlike Genius Award at the NME or, you know, these kind of things. And I always kind of I write nice stuff about people. So I think when I'm talking about music, I can express myself quite well, you know, in long form. 
Yeah, I find it. Um, I didn't find it hard to write. You know, I, I find it a joy actually. You know, it's good fun. I mean, it's a music nerd's dream. Um, first off, the way you've read it, but the life you've led, and you know, I, I'll back up because I, you know, I, I also talked with Will Sargent. Your books came out at the same time, around the same time, and everything. And and it was interesting how both of your books start. Of course, is is just looking at your environment as a good biography would. And so much of it was based on your early days, um, the war that had just happened. I mean, here you are in post-war England. It seemed like, and it's interesting too, because we don't have that same experience, obviously, over here in America uh, to kind of understand that. I mean, we, we've got small versions of it, I suppose, but nothing like like you had. I think uh, the, the, the line I picked up from your book uh, from those early chapters was, death was real and close. Oh, yeah, well, I was... Um... That was in relation to the Aberfan disaster, which um, was when a pile of coal, I guess it was a school quite close to a coal mine in Wales, and um, the the pile of coal, it was like a mountain, like a hill of coal, um, collapsed on a school and killed a number of school children. So my, my school, uh, Hyde Park Primary, was... Um, was overlooked by some by a park, and the park had sort of like small hills. And um, I would look out the window. Maybe it was my imagination, you know. And I'd imagine, well, it could happen to us, you know. And um, and also, I also referenced the Ibrox disaster when sixty six fans of the Glasgow Rangers football team were uh, crushed to death when the when the the wheels and the the steps uh, that that led from the terracing. Uh, down at the the street uh, collapsed and um, terrible thing to happen in Glasgow. But um, I would have uh, boys at my primary school may have been at that game with their dads, you know. And um, again, just maybe I was just a sense of kid, but I just assisted. I just feeling the um, you know I would see the the newspapers and it would say you know, sixty six crushed it, Ibrox disaster, you know. And, I would think, oh, I wonder if this kid or that kid from my school was there with a the dad, you know? And so I thought about stuff like that early on, you know? It was, um, maybe I just had my antennae up, you know? I don't know, but um, these were um, kind of things that I remember from my childhood, you know? And I, I thought they should go in the book because they also conjured up images of a dark country that hasn't quite escaped the war. You know, though it was, I'm writing about 1966 and 1970, I think the Ibrox is a 71 Ibrox disaster, or 70-71. It was still, I tend to, when you look at photographs of old Glasgow from the 60s, they're always in black and white. And when you see the tenements, um, it, it, no, no different from the 1930s. You know, and in many ways, the poverty was still as bad, you know. So really, I was trying to evoke that feeling that nothing much had changed for the, the people at the bottom. And so really, that's why I, I write that stuff. Well, it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, not that I'm near the first person to say this, but now that when we look at things in hindsight, uh, we look at history, you know, seeing that punk is what came out in the 70s, uh, followed by the, those, those dark tones of post-punk, and, and, and that was, you know, as, as you point out with, especially with the Sex Pistols, that becomes year zero in, in a lot of this. But is it 
is it, I mean, as everything influences in our life one way or the other, but is it obvious to you when you look back at the way the war shaped you, did that have a direct impact on the music that you would go on to make? Well, the war ended in 1945, right? I was born in 1961, but my parents lived through the war and um, my granddad indeed had been on the beach at uh, Dunkirk when he was part of the British Expeditionary Force, which uh, were being, they were routed by uh, the, the, the Wehrmacht, the German army, Nazis, and um, they were driven back through Belgium and France, uh, back to a beach in Dunkirk, and they were being bombed from the Luftwaffe and, you know, shelled by Rommel's tanks, and um, it was a, a defeat, you know? They were, um, they were on the run, and um, but the British have turned that into like a heroic, uh, heroic failure, you know? So my granddad was on that beach, and um, so I never knew my granddad. I think I met, met him once or twice when I was a baby, but he wasn't in my dad's life, you know? Even from, the, my dad, had, I think had spent six months with his dad, my granddad, you know, back in the 40s, late 30s. And um, so, but, you know, and various members of my mother's side and my, my dad's side had fought in the British Army in various wars. So um, the point is that when I was a child in the 60s, all of the comics that I had, reference to war. They were full of Nazis and Japanese. They were always bad guys, you know? And the British were all, and always a bit stupid, and the, and the British guys were always good guys, moral and very clever, you know? And um, we had war films, you know, we had combat, American TV series, we had Hogan's Heroes. Uh, them in the 70s, we, you know, that was a reference in World War Two, and then in the 70s we had MASH, you know, referencing Vietnam, and but as a child of the 60s, you know, um, there was, um, you know, like um, the movies I would see would be like Where Eagles Dare or um, the, the Great Escape, Steve McQueen. Um, it was just all war. Everything was still about the war. You couldn't escape it, you know. So the games we played when we were children was like, uh, you know, Japs and Yanks, right, or, you know, against, you know, for some reason it wasn't Brits against Nazis, it was Japs and Yanks, I don't know why. Maybe it seemed more glamorous, right? But, um, you know, we were, um, you know, you know I'm a, I remember my dad to the book and um, there was loads of pictures of, the, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral with Nazi bombers above it and a black smoke and um, the carnage uh, wreaked upon uh, London by the, the Luftwaffe and, um, you know, World War II books and stuff and um, photo books. And um, so it was pretty much, it was quite heavy in the consciousness of stuff, you know. Um, but obviously the, the thing is, I mean, I read about my book. I was born just before the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think. So um, I'm really a child of the Cold War rather than World War II. My dad's a child of World War II. So is my mum, you know, so I'm like... Um, paranoid Cold War. I mean, 1980, we thought, 79, you know, we, I was going to CND marches because we really felt, we believed the propaganda that there was going to be a nuclear war between the West and the Russians, you know? And so, yeah, 
the, you know, and born in the shadow of the nuclear bomb. So um, I, I think, you know, I think it obviously affects your consciousness in um, various ways, but it wasn't something I thought about a lot. You know, it was, um, of course, in the 70s, we, we had the National Front uh, in Britain, mostly in England, um, which were um, fascists, and a racist, um, far-right racist, uh, fascist, um, anti-Jewish, anti-black, anti-immigrant, anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-trade union. You know, they were they were gaining a bit of popularity in the 70s. And um, that's what the anti-Nazi League formed to oppose, you know, and bands like Clash and X-Ray Specs and Tom Robinson Band and Steel Pulse and Aswad and The Fall. A lot of bands, uh, rock and reggae bands, punk rock and reggae bands, would, John Cooper Clark would play gigs against, you know, rock against racism gigs and um, show solidarity with the, the Jewish people and the black people and, you know, people on the left and stuff. So um, that sense of anti-fascism was um, something that was very strong in my family, you know, due to my, my dad, you know, my dad's trade union. He was a trade union organiser, so he was a, a proud anti-fascist, you know. So um, I kind of... Really, that's in my background, you know. You know, I don't have the the British um, that kind of patriotic, you know, queen and country thing. Far from it, you know. I'm, I'm a pacifist, but um, I'm like um, a proud anti-fascist myself, you know. So, yeah, I mean, you know, my my background is quite. There's a lot of left wing um, radicalism in my family, you know. Really, my my father really, and I think his one of his uncles was very radical, you know, back in the, the 1920s and stuff. So it kind of runs through the family in some way. Uh, me, I'm just like a, a rock and roll singer who has got, you know, that's it really, you know, I just, I want everybody to be good, you know, I, I just hope, you know what I'm saying, you know, so I don't, it's like I don't like to, I kind of stand out in Britain because people in bands don't really speak out so much, you know. Um, or ally themselves with, with, with certain causes, you know. In America, it seems that artists like, you know, Bernie Saunders had bands like The Strokes playing benefit gigs for him and even the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And, you know, a lot of cool people were um, coming out publicly for Bernie Saunders. Uh, in Britain, um, you know, the rock, the rock people, the, the, the grind people were coming out for Jeremy Corbyn, you know, and he was like the British Bernie Saunders, really. And... Um, yeah, but I think class has got a lot to do with it, you know? Yeah. Well, the Graham and show artists are working class kids from council estates, and most of the rock bands now are, you know, they, they're not coming from the council estates, you know? And so it's very, music's very, I don't know, I don't want to talk too much about it. You know, every, you know I'm, I'm happy for everybody make music to do their thing, you know, but I think the there's definitely no radicalism in British rock music, you know, political way. The only people that are really vocal are the Sleaford mods, you know, and, and the, the kind of rock world, I think, you know. But, you know, that's that's fine. You know, I mean, not everybody, everybody has to be political, but um, the the war thing, I think it, if anything, it hangs over British culture. And I would say certain parts of Scotland, Northern Ireland, and large parts of England, this... Um, 
fucking full patriotism about Britain, you know, standing up against the lone country that stood up against Hitler and, you know, and um, this real, it's, it's, they keep summoning up World War Two and Winston Churchill and, you know, it's just, it's really fucked up, man, you know. That's, that's the easy way of saying it right there. Because it, it, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's like, um, you know, Britain, Britain had millions, you know, colonial trips from Canada, Australia, India, Africa, the French, you know, North Africa, the French had, you know, hundreds of thousands of Moroccan trips, you know, and Algerian trips that they could, you know, they all took part in the, the invasion uh, of Europe, you know, to, you know, and, um, the, you know, they, the, that's a lie that, you know, that the Great Britain stood up against Hitler on its own, you know, I mean, look, you know, the United States, uh, Russia, I mean, for fuck, you know, it's like, these people are, they sell themselves as, they don't read history, they're, um, they're selling themselves as lie, wrapping themselves in the Union Jack, and, um, you know, the British flag, you know, it's only called the Union Jack when it flies in a, a, a naval ship, I think, or it flies at sea, but, you know, they're, it's like, it's a really warped sense of patriotism, you know. For me, patriotism is true patriotism is um, not being a warlike person, but you know, a person that wishes the best for everybody that lives in one's own country. And you want to see, um, you know, like a social change for the better, that so everybody has a, a nice standard of living. You know, to me, that's patriotic. You know, uh, we're on the. Yeah, same page on that. I mean, I think nationalism is one of the most dangerous things that you can have. And, and yeah, yeah. And, and when I look, you know. And, you... And I would take it from anybody, you know, that, that tried to say anything against me. My dad was in the fucking Royal Artillery. My granddad was, you know, on the beach in Dunkirk. You know, my, my great uncle was killed, you know, in the First World War in the trenches, you know, when he was like 16 or something, you know. Why did he be age, you know? And I went to fight. You know, we lots of my people, lots of my family have served in the British Army. So I'm not going to take that shit from anybody that says, uh, you know, you know, we've we've done a bit, man. You know. So the thing is, it's like you know, it's um, it's always the working class that are sent to die. You know, in the rich man's war, the capitalist war. But anyway, we're here to talk about rock and roll. <laughs> it all you know, leads into rock. John Fogerty wrote the best song about it, "Fortunate Son." Right. I mean. Well, yeah, no, that's uh, but it all leads into rock and roll because what we're doing here, you know, the way what your dad was doing versus the messages you were putting out in your song. I don't say versus it was hand in hand, you know, when, when you talk about come together and that general theme that leads throughout a lot of these songs. And and further on, you know, there's you you seem to, at least in the book, uh, and I only mean that in, you know, whether it's in hindsight that you notice this or not, but um, to have such a strong sense of I'll, I'll say feminism. You know, was also a big part of it too. The the way you were looking at, like, like where did that part come from? Because you were looking out for equality from the very beginning within the band, within the songs. Well, I think when I was at school, I, I kind of not that I had any girlfriends, but more like a, I would sit at the back of the class with certain with girls, and I got, I found that I got on with girls quite well, not romantically, right? Nobody was really interested in me, right? When I was at school, but you know, just chatting and stuff. And um, and also, you know, I guess obviously I love my mother. And, um, but I did, I guess I was just questioning stuff. 
but not in a very sophisticated way, in a very basic way, you know, and I would hear, obviously when you're a teenager, you hear other guys talking about girls and I don't like the way they're talking about women. You know, when they're talking about sex, it was always what, you know, things were being done to girls. Things were, you know, what did you get from her? You know, um, and it was always this aggression. And um, I, I don't think I liked that. But also, you know, I, I just guess because of my dad's influence that I felt that, you know, women and men should get paid the same wages. You know, and my dad did a lot of work with, with women. He organised factories, women in factories, and got them, showed them how to help bargain and, you know, do stuff for themselves to, to get, you know, to get better pay in the factory and some certain factories where they weren't getting paid as much as men and stuff, you know. So he did his bit as well. I mean, you know, and I think that I, I was just, yeah, I just think everybody should be equal. I think it was just that. It was that basic, you know. But I could see that in the world that the men had a some kind of unspoken um, uh, privileges that maybe I didn't think were fair, you know. And as I say, it wasn't a very sophisticated reading of it. It was just uh, something that I sensed and saw. And I never, you know, I never thought women were less than men. And I just never did, you know. And I just think it was just, it's that simple, you know. I wasn't reading like, um, you know, feminist books and getting ideas from them. It was just kind of basic human equality really you know and then i guess when i did you know when i got older and I maybe looked at some feminist uh, literature then i kind of i, I kind of went it's more in depth you know you know and uh, I, I you know maybe i saw i began to see more how this stuff works against women structurally you know invisible invisible change you know just like structural racism you know so Again, I guess, it, you know, it's like if you're a woman or a colored person, you know, you, if I can use that term, you, there's things that you're putting up with all your life that you and I don't see, you know, just are white guys, you know, white males, you know, and so, and um, so, yeah, it was like when the, the punk bands had, you know, there was Susie and X-Ray Specs probably starting the slits. I didn't think, oh, that's weird as a, a girl singing where, you know, I just thought, that's just, you know, <laughs> Susie's as good as a clash, you know, or, yeah, you know, or the jam, you know, I thought, it's all, it's all good, you know, I didn't think, God, that it's not as good because they've got to get all in the band, you know what I mean? It just, it just never occurred to me, you know, it was, it was just really that, 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 that pretty basic, really, you know, and um, I guess, you know, when, yeah, that basic, you know. I mean, I don't know. My wife, my my wife, my wife would um, she might say um, she might have some um, something to say about that. You know, maybe a feminist. I don't know. You know, I think uh, I mean, I think you know, I I I I I think I'm in my own way. You know, well, that's. I mean, it was it was just such an important time that you all were doing where you were challenging. The constraints of masculinity, of femininity, uh, of gender, and that would be in the music too, especially when punk took over. I mean, you, you talk about, you know, like I, I love Thin Lizzy, but I also know they were sort of coming at it from this macho sense it, with, okay. yeah. But I believe in good macho. Like, 
that Phil Lennon's good match or MC5 a good match on. Right. Right, because it's very male and there's nothing wrong with, with being very male. You know, you've got to allow, you've got to allow Phil Lennon to be Phil Lennon or Wayne Kramer and uh, Sonic Smith to be, you know, themselves. I mean, they're, you know, t- testosterone's um, horny young rockers, you know, it's like... Um, Lots of girls that lots of most women I know, you know, they they fucking they love Phil Lennon, you know, they or they love the MC5, you know, they're like, well, they think those guys are hot, you know. So I think it's good macho, you know. Um, maybe you know, there's you know, I've heard tales, I'm not gonna say which bands, but you know, like successful British rock bands from the 70s that that, that treated women appallingly, you know, like, but again, you know, it's like I kind of think, well, you know, a lot of guys that were in bands in the 60s and the 70s were really had 50s mindsets, you know, because they were born in the 40s. So they were kind of sexist. They were, they, it was really, they came from a, a, a sexist world. You know, I was kind of born into a world that was questioning sexism. Do you know what I mean? When I became a teenager, there was, the feminist movement had happened in the late 60s, early 70s, so it was challenging macho ideals you know and, and it i think that filtered down into the bands like the the slits the old pairs susie um you know x3 specs i mean i, I know i'm sure all of those artists were just doing what they were going to do whatever but you know i think that the fact that feminism had happened was gave there was some kind of sword and shield in a way you know I think, you know, culturally, in, in culturally speaking and creatively speaking, you know, and um, I mean, I know, or Chrissy Hines, you know, but in, in saying that, I don't know if Chrissy Hines would say she was a feminist, you know, but she's kind of, but I think, you know, even then, Chrissy Hines, like, is she a, she's obviously a woman, but she's kind of like a guy as well. And Susie's like that. And to me, that's very interesting. And I think I'm the same, except, you know, I'm a bit feminine, but I'm a guy, you know. So there's, there's a kind of, there's um, and that's primal scream, you know. Her guitarist Robert, he died a few years, but he's very macho. He's like, you know, like the Wayne Kramer kind of thin Lizzy guy, but you know, but it's offset to me. I'm a bit camp, you know, and a bit like, you know, there's. It's a mixture, and I think that kind of mixture is, I think it's important in, in, in music. It's good to have that kind of androgynous. And I think, you know, Primal Scream have had that because of me, but even Robert, you know, he was a big kind of macho guy, you know, that powerful, powerfully built guy, you know, and, um, you know, but, you know, leather pants, the makeup, the long hair, shots, you know, there's still a very feminine thing going on, you know mix some of the macho and you know again you know a lot of people find that attractive you know so I, I knew that what I was playing with you know back in the late 80s early 90s was mid 90s was I was kind of playing with that you know that that kind of femininity and rock and because I, I didn't really see it a lot and like, especially indie rock you know I think you know and um that it's something that disappeared you know and I, I, I liked that androgyny. I liked, you know, wearing makeup and, you know, blouses and leather pants and stuff and being slightly fade, but at the same time, a bit tough as well, you know, mixing it. And um, I think, you know, and um, being, you know, being a hard 
core rocker, but also write vulnerable songs, you know. And I like that mixture because you could be more than one thing, you know. And this is the that's part of the message, I guess, you know. And really, um, yeah, I was part of the the image and also like you know, the band are a hard rocking band, and they like to play Les Paul screaming Les Pauls through under what Marshall stacks, but they've got me as a lead singer, you know. I'm not exactly, oh, I, I, you know, I wish I could sing with Paul Rogers, but, you know, only Paul Rogers can, but, you know, I've got, I've got a, gen, a gentle voice, so I had to try and find my place in amongst that power, and that's a challenge, and, um, you know, and so, but that, I think that's, that was, um, that was fun, you know, trying to find out my place in, in, in that power, power structure, you know, of a rock band. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcast and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. One of the things I loved about your collaboration last year with Jenny Beth is because you come at not gender so much, but but how you approach image in, in such similar ways. By the way, that album was so good. Just a Thank side compliment. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's really kind of you. Thank you. Just, just what you do there. And and that's the thing. I mean, the, the, the way you've championed the artist. Like, I, I was also thinking, like, you know, the way you talk about Thin Lizzy in the book, the way you talk about the Ramones, getting, I mean, we, you know, music fans, real, real music fans, we all had that moment, you know, the, the first bands that we saw and the way they made us feel. And then for me, much like the drugs you talk about in this book, I'm always on that quest to get that high again you know, to find that. Do you find that you're still able to connect um, with newer artists or even artists from, you know, the past that you, like, are you still finding that high in the way that you did with Thin Lizzy and the Ramones? I don't think I'll ever find anything that hits me that hard because I was 15, 16, you know, when I saw those artists and they were at the peak of the powers and everything was, rock and roll was new, gigs were new. I mean, it was just, and, they were so glamorous, you know, and very, and it really spoke to me, you know. And I think at that age, 15, 16, 17, you're, you know, your emotions are you still forming your personality. So anything that has a deep emotional impact is, um, it's hard to replicate that in the future. I mean, you can, I think I can enjoy things uh, like I love the, one of my favorite art, two of my favorite artists at the moment are Lone Lady and um, Kelly Lee Owens. Inner sound. It's a uh, electronic music, but yeah, it's a very good record. You know, I, I knew her when she was working in the record stores. She used to work in uh, Rough Trade and record stores in Soho and stuff. And um, she started, you know, ten years ago, whatever, twelve years ago, and she just started to make music. And um, over the last, I think she got two albums out. But this new album, well, I think it was actually released not last year, but the year before. But she was touring it last year. Um. It's really, it's a beautiful record, you know. So, I mean, I, I, you know, and like, I'm, I, you know, Kurt Vile, I'm a big fan of Kurt. 
uh, Kurt Vile. Love um, Kurt. Yep. Kurt, I love to see him play live. I love when Kurt plays guitar. It's I, I really feel it. You know, he's one of the few young guys. Um, when he plays, it's like a it's real feeling, you know. So, you know, the things do affect me, you know, and things I really do dig things, you know. But um, I just think for anybody, it's very. I'm not chasing that thing that hit me when I was 15, 16, 17, like Clash, Ramones, Susie, Thin Lizzy, because, you know, um, I don't think anything's going to hit me like that again, you know. I don't think. Maybe if I'd seen, you know, a really great soul singer that would, you know, soul artist, you know, even, it's going to take a voice. I think the only thing that's going to do it for me is a voice. You know, like, you know, so, you know, so, like a, a great voice, great words, a great songwriter. It's gonna, it's not going to be like high energy rock and roll. Do you know what I mean? I've had that hit. I'm not looking for that hit anymore. You know, it's like this afternoon I was playing, um, I'm a huge Warren Zevon fan. And oh, I was Warren. playing, oh yeah, I mean, and I was playing a uh, Hasten Down the Wind. And it's just like, <laughs> you know, it's just the lyrics are just just fabulous, you know. So I'm more I would be looking more for that kind of hit, a kind of you know, not visceral high energy rock and roll pardon me, hit. It'd be more like a poetry uh sound or the emotion of a voice. You know, that's that's what would be that would affect me, you know. I can tell you the first time I heard Carmelita, that's one of those moments, you know, from, from Zivon. Carmelita from uh, oh. Zivon. I mean, that, you know, that was one of those moments for me. That's. Have you seen that footage of, um, uh, I think it's Willie, someone that's made a film of um, Jack Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. You know, Jack Nietzsche, mm -hmm. who just, somebody made a little film. I think you can get it on YouTube and it's him. Someone's playing him, Mink DeVille. Willie DeVoe singing Carmelita. Someone's playing him a tape of it, right? And the actions, the face, the things that um, Jack Nietzsche says, you know, after every line, you know, county won't get, the county won't give me no more methadone. They've cut off my welfare check. And Nietzsche's like, oh man, oh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, upon my Smith and Wesson, upon my Smith Corona, I went down to meet my man. He hangs out down on El Dorado Street by the Pioneer Chicken Stone. And um, Nietzsche's like, oh, man, this is the shit. You know, he's like, <laughs> I don't think he'd heard the song before. And he was just like, so, you know, he's a poet, right? Because he wants to poet. And that's how you get me now, you know, words, you know. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that people can't play iron at your own role and it's not great, you know. I'm just saying, I don't think it will have the effect, same effect on me as those guys, you know. I mean, Phil Leonard is just, you know, just, oh, you know, just, you just look at a picture, photograph of Phil in action, and you're like, oh, you know, he's, he's just, he's just, it's commitment, you know, he's what a guy. Well, I, I'm not blowing smoke your way, but I can tell you also, um, like, I had been a fan for a long time, and then, God, Maybe it was the right moment when It's All Right, It's Okay came out. I probably listened to that song 
Thank you. A hundred times that year, you know, Kowalski. I mean, I, I can go back through your catalog. I mean, you're giving those moments to other people. And that's got to be a nice moment because as you talk through this book about, I mean, you are such a fan and, you know, you are such a hardcore, you know, so many, I mean, you're a champion of the B-sides, which is so much fun to, to listen to. But there's that moment when you are on the other side. You're the person making those songs in the way that, Lizzie, well, you so that's what yeah i always hoped that that's what we might achieve with the band that we'd make music that that meant other people you know as much as the music of the clash or susie or you know um you know can or joy division meant to us you know that was always the i always hoped for that you know well you've definitely done that and then the book ends on such a well-written, perfect paragraph. Got a little bit of chills in there. We use, you know, that last line about the '90s, and 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 <laughs> that was me having fun. I loved it. I wrote it and I thought, I was like, can I do this? <laughs> People are going to think he's an arrogant bastard, you know. And I showed it to my editor, and he went, "No, it's perfect. It's perfect. Just leave it hanging there, you know." I was in Nirvana. Everybody, fuck off. <laughs> Is that the plan? I mean, is it, does that lead in? I mean, are you planning on part two? Because it surely uh, seems I'm, like that. Well, and I, I wasn't really, I wasn't planning on it, right? But because I'd never written a book before, right? I, I didn't, I wasn't sure uh, what constituted the book. So I just wrote a, a 250,000, 260,000 words, a splurge. I just got it all out, right? And my editor, Lee Braxton, he, he cut it down to like 150,000 words, right? And and then I wrote another 8,000 words to, just to, um, because he put some, you know, he, he underlined some bits in the edit and says, I think you can add more to this story. I think that you, I think you can write more about this certain s situation, right? So I wrote another 8,000 words. But I also, although I gave him 240,000 words, I'd written way more than that. Because I wrote up until 19, September 1991. That's what I gave him, Lee. But I wrote up until, I just kept writing up until about 1998, 1999. So there is the beginnings of maybe another book that is, there's definitely stuff that, that could constitute, you know, not a whole book, but I could, um, there's, um, you know, it's like half the next album. I've written half the next album. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I want to hear that story, though, because, you yeah, know, I, I want to hear about it. I went further, you know, but again, it's something, it's a challenge that I have. I think I'm going to do it, you know, because it's such fun uh, writing Tenement Kid, you know, and so Tenement Kid ends at the beginning of the 90s, and I, I can, you know, a lot happened to the to me and the band, you know, throughout that decade. So, um, and you know, there was a lot of social uh, economic. Yeah, you know, there was there was things happening in culture in Britain at the time that we were part of. That maybe I can, I, I, you know, other stuff I can tie in. So it's not just about rock and roll, you know. So I really need to. It's a challenge, and I'm, I think I might take the challenge up actually. You know, and maybe it'll be a shorter book this time. It will be 400 pages long, you know. <laughs> a novella. 
<laughs> it was great. I mean, there is there's so much story I, I, I am interested to hear, you know, those vanishing point uh, moments. And then just knowing that, you know, especially in the 90s, how the 70s had come back into full swing and so many bands were looking back on that, and, you know, the effect uh, that I had on you. Like, I, I feel like there is a lot of story personally that I'm, I'm so invested in this. I'm just encouraging you to keep doing what you're doing because it's it's a great one. Well, I know what you're saying, but the thing is that that can be looked at in a different way, you know, because I know how I'm going to approach that, actually. I, I've, got a, I've got a kind of idea about how I would approach that stuff. Because even during the nineties, I began to question. Uh, I began to question my behaviour and the behaviour of others around me, and um, I questioned it. Uh, you know, at first creatively, then politically. You know, and then um, didn't stop me behaving the way I behaved, but I, I think I was self-aware enough that I began writing songs about it, and those songs ended up in the album Exterminator. You know, so. Um, I got, you know, and I, I was also in the 90s reading a lot of black revolutionary literature from the 60s and um, uh, making um, some of my own uh, uh, links between um, drug culture, you know, and, you know, black America and, and the, the American hippie counterculture in the six, late 60s and 70s. And then and then the drug culture in the UK uh, in the 90s. And, um, you know, and um, I'm not going to say my dear because I don't want to get the book away, but, you know, I, I did. I, start, I started thinking, well, maybe um, maybe there's something more of the availability, the easy the easy availability of hard drugs, you know. Maybe, maybe it serves a purpose for somebody and um, maybe it's working against us, you know. So, but again... So we'll see. I hope so. Like I said, uh, I, I love the book. Uh, I love the music. Again, you know, thank the you so much. Done, uh, all that you've done. The one last time. I mean, and, and I'm sure, I'm sure there's going to be more music in the future. Is that is that next on the list, or or do you go back and forth now? What? I don't know. What? Oh, sorry. Uh, no, no, no. We we have got uh, we have got some gigs this uh, this summer uh, playing uh, the Screamadelic album. And they're in the UK and Ireland. And I think at some point we're hoping to come play some gigs in America. So that's it for the meantime. You know? That'd be more convenient for me. I don't mind hopping over. It just, it's harder these days. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I always like coming there. I love coming. There. I love the USA, you know. I love it. It's uh, my favorite. It's a lot of my favorite stuff comes from America. I'm a big American there. Uh, fan of American music, you know, and films and stuff. You're always welcome. And uh, and I look forward to the next time uh, seeing the band too. Bobby, congratulations on this book and, and everything, man. And it was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for doing this. Thanks. Take care. And my thanks, Bobby Gillespie of Primal Scream, the uh, autobiography. The book is out, and it's called Tenement Kid. Big thanks to you as well for checking out the interview. Uh, before you get out, again, please do hit that subscribe button so you can keep up with all the interviews that we put out every single week. New ones every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at all the usual spots like iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, Podchaser, NPR, YouTube for the video versions, or anywhere you get your podcasts from. Subscribe to Kyle Meredith with... 
Then after that, head over to WFPK.org, where I do a show Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern. It's an hour full of song premieres, music news, anniversary spins, bonus interviews. Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern at WFPK.org. Consequence has your music and film news. You can also find me on the social media spots, uh, mostly on Twitter, but also Facebook and Instagram, all three of them at Kyle Meredith. I do hope you like and follow along. That does it for another edition. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. There were the first names French, really, Robert. Um, but we had a Scottish, we had a Scottish king who was actually the grandson of a Norman knight called Robert the Bruce. Maybe that's how it entered the uh, Scottish culture, you know. Robert Bruce, very famous, beat the last uh, big battle at Bannockburn in 1314. He vanquished uh, the English. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media. Hey there, it's Kyle Meredith from Kyle Meredith With. After you check out the latest episode of my show, uh, be sure to check out some of our other great programs on the Consequence Podcast Network, including Standing BTS, a bi-weekly podcast covering all things BTS and ARMY, and The Opus, Consequence's original documentary podcast exploring legendary albums and their lasting legacies. So head to consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others.